Hi, I'm John Atak, and I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Eileen Barker. Uh, hello, Eileen. Hello, John. And um, Eileen is a, an eminent figure in the world of uh, the study of new religious movements. And um, we could probably sit here for an hour and go through all of the things you've done and, and, um, and still not get to the end of it. Yes, exactly. Um, but you're a professor at the London School of Economics uh, and you're a professor of sociology, now emerita professor, is that right? Yep. You're also the uh, founder of Inform, which is a, a group that gives information about new religious movements. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but in 1992, uh, which is uh, much too long ago, um, we spoke and you started actually, Inform started making referrals um, about Scientology directly to me. And for about three years, I was taking those referrals. Um, so, but we didn't really, uh, beyond that, they'd just be passed to me and there wasn't any conversation. Um, I remember having lunch with you sometime at LSE, you came up for lunch. I don't. And and you, when, we, when we met in Bordeaux, you mentioned this, and it must be uh, my doppelganger. Um, we spoke on the phone a couple of times, um, but um, that was about it. Now, I, I think that, that like me, that, that you've tried to maintain a neutral position and not to, you know, I think we both found that the kind of fervour of the anti-cult movement was a bit too much. Um, and it's understandable that people who, whose loved ones, uh, whose friends or family had joined a group and seemed to change, and obviously their beliefs do change and so their behaviour will change, that they became frightened that, that they were being processed into brainwashed zombies. And that's never been my experience in the possibly thousands now of members that I've met. Um, there is no, you know, kind of snapping into a different condition that you can't be rescued from. And it, I think it was made far worse in the 1970s by people like Ted Patrick, who started kidnapping people and doing awful things to them. Um, so I think we're very much in agreement that, that, that you know, those, that's not the way to look at it, that, that we need to be, um, if we can be, dispassionate. And, and look at what the actual effects of groups are. I wanted to start with, with a statement from, from your book, New Religious Movements, where you say, new religious movements cannot be lumped together. They differ from one another in numerous respects, um, which is a statement I've used in a, in a paper a couple of years ago, because somebody was trying to lump them together and say, that, well, it's just this, this thing, these new religious movements. Um, is that, I presume that continues to be your view? Oh, yes. Yeah. Almost so if, more so every time I meet a new one. Yes. But but there are lots of overlaps, of course, as there are with old religious movements. Absolutely. I, I mean, I tend to be a bit hesitant about the term new religious movement. Um, the Encyclop Encyclopedia Britannica gives it as any group founded after 1830. Um, giving Joseph Smith as the, and I, I think the newness may not be particularly relevant. You know, some groups like, you know, Krishna consciousness have roots that go back possibly thousands of years. Um, so it, I, I don't use new religious movements now 
religions, except if I'm talking about new religious movements, when it is primarily um, first um, generation membership, that is, their converts. Yeah. So the people, it's it's new to the majority of people because I think that's a useful category of movements which has certain um, certain properties, certain characteristics, not always, but very often, that change as you get to the second generation and subsequent generations. So I've actually found it quite useful for seeing what some of these, there are about six different properties that they possibly will have, and it's useful to point those out, to look for them in those kind of movements, which are new, and which were generally the ones that we were talking about in the 70s. Mm. Um, and which aren't new anymore. They've all, they've all changed dramatically. That and of course, no. you know, that the Hare Krishna, it, it's gone in those days, I would have said, was a new religious movement by my definition, mm. in that it was um, set up by Prabhupada in the 60s yeah. as an institution which was mainly full of converts. Mm. And it did have most of the properties that I associate with a new religious movement. Mm. But they may have old beliefs. They've usually got some kind of new organization, but not generally. Mm. Um, but we, I mean, there's nothing new under the, on the earth in a sense, but there are ways of twisting it to make it new. Mm. I mean, so anyway, that, that's how I think of new religions now. But I didn't back then. I mean, in that book, I think if you mean new religious movements, practical introduction. Yeah. That was in 89, I think, and I think then I defined them as appeared since the Second World War. Yes. Since the Second World War, but I wouldn't say that now. Mm. But of course, one's stuck with what one's put in print. Yes, isn't it true? Um, and I mean, would you still, would you subscribe to Brian Wilson's categorization of, of a new religious movement? He, of course, wrote an essay about Scientology in which he said, well, it, it, and he gave the criteria that he felt were relevant. Do you think that's... I can't remember <laughs> that. I, I remember reading it. He, Scientology got a whole lot of people to write things, and I know Brian was one of them. Mm. What, what did he say? I can't remember. Well, he, he gave, you know, quite a list of points, which, which I should have dragged out and had in front of me. Um, I had yeah, difficult... He, oh, I remember he had... They had 11 of the 15 points or something. Yeah, if you score this many, then then you... Was it to be a new religion or to be a religion? I think he was he was talking about the definition of religion, really, yes. yes. I think so, because it was to do with a charity case at that time, or, you know, what was it at the time of um, the, the St. Hill Chapel being recognised as a place for yeah, they continued to make applications from the 1960s on, and um, Lord Justice Denning um, ruled that they weren't a religion because they didn't have an object of worship. And then, yeah. of course, Buddhism was recognised as a religion, and yeah. Yeah. He claims not to. They changed recently. Mm. I, I mean, my concern, you know, I focused very much on Scientology until 1996, when I got tired of being sued and harassed and followed everywhere, and um, withdrew from that. And moved my study largely to uh, terrorism through the 1990s, seeing that 
I was looking for commonalities between um, different groups that, that assessed their, the level of their fervor, let's say, and the authoritarianism of, of the structure. And it seemed to me that there, there are commonalities in behavior. And so, you know, we can look at the children of God and um, Heaven's Gate and um, ISIS, and we see that there's a, a commitment. Um, indeed, the original definition of the word cult, um, a devotion to a, a person or a, a teaching, which has been superseded, um, which I thought was actually something mainly to do with sociologists in the 1970s. But having researched it, the first time the word cult was used in a pejorative fashion was in the 1890s, where it enters the American Heritage Dictionary. So, um, and it, it's understandable. I mean, I mean, my feeling is, if people, you know, I did use the word cult for a period of time, wanting to maintain the original definition, not meaning anything negative, but unfortunately it's taken on a negative meaning. And so we, I feel that we have to be careful in the, in the use of that term. Um, so I, if somebody feels that it will help them to think about the group they belong to as a cult, then that may be useful. But so often people will walk up to me and say, you know, my son is in this group, is it a cult? And I sort of say, well, is it dangerous? I don't really care whether it's a cult or not. Is it doing harm? And as yet, nobody has understood that reply, I don't think. They all kind of, yeah, but is it a cult, you know? Yeah, I've been asked that. Is it a cult or is it a real religion? Mm. I said, well, what do you mean by a cult? What do you mean by a real religion? Because, of course, all concepts are man-made, usually man-made, usually women-made. Yeah. But, um, you know, they, they get certain kinds of usage. And sociologists used to make the distinction between church, denomination, sect, and cult. Mm. And, um, but that, that only really worked for um, sort of Christian Western type of groups. It mm. wasn't terribly useful. But um, I, th I think religion, nobody's ever managed to get a satisfactory answer no. to that. But it doesn't matter as long as we know what we're talking about and we, we explain it. And mm. uh, say by religion I mean belief in God or uh, belief in something that provides answers to questions of ultimate um, importance. Mm. So, um, that that would be the tillic argument or tillic definition, which isn't an argument, which isn't true or false. Mm. But I I tried very much. I fought very much against. The use of cults in its prerogative term because it just sort of said one, two, three, four, they're brainwashed, they lose children, etc. Um, and I mean, when, when you said just now, just um, in parenthesis, about ISIS and the children of God mm. being fanatic, I mean, there's such a big difference between them. Putting them in the same category is actually very dangerous. The children of God did very nasty things to. Um, their second generation children during mm. the basics. But um, they loved their children in their own sort of way. And they were just nothing like ISIS. They were fanatic, yes, but not fanatically hating, mm. which ISIS is. And I, I think, you know, that, that's just an example of you can put people together because they share something. And it it's very easy then to assume that they share other things. 
um, so they would be like Manson or family or, or um, Jonestown or something. And Jonestown comes up, has been ever since 78, 22, when this happened. Yes. Um, this is the example of what a cult is. I've labeled you as a cult. Therefore, you're likely to commit mass suicide. Mm. The sort of implication emerges that's built out. I was saying something else and I um, distracted myself from what I was <laughs> Probably also very important. But my, you know, I think there's a spectrum and it's a spectrum of authoritarianism um, for, for me, where members of a group look at QAnon most recently. Members of a group will, um, as you know, as, as Voltaire said, those who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. And it goes along a spectrum with the children of God. We look at, I, I think it is the, the willingness to believe that an individual has the truth and that they must be followed, which um, is, you know, is true within these groups. As you say, you know, it's you can't... I'm sorry? What about Christians who believe oh. Jesus truth that has to be followed it's a matter of well it's a matter of the living leader and the dead leader and, and the extremes to which a group will go and where we find that the group is harmful towards others it's antisocial in its behavior and as you say the children of god you know there are an awful lot of people recovering from their childhood or not recovering indeed from their yeah. childhood and the children of god their lives are absolutely wrecked um so I was, you know, I'm interested in the aspects of awe and fervor, that the, you know, how fervent a believer is. And so with the average Anglican or Methodist, we, we don't have that fervent drive, which are, allows people to commit atrocities, to, to do terrible things to their fellow human beings. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's one of my list of characteristics of a new religious movement, which is almost by definition, because converts tend to be far more enthusiastic, even fanatic, than people who are born into a religion. Um, that's not always the case. You can get fanatics who are born in, and you get people who join new religions who aren't particularly um, fanatic. But generally the convert, because he or she is converted, this is a big step to take. Mm -hmm. so, change their whole lifestyle and their whole worldview. And so this has got to be fanatic. And funnily enough, although they're terribly strong, they're also rather wobbly at that stage, mm. because they haven't got the sort of general background, which makes them vulnerable in a number of ways. And mm. why there's such a big turnover, which people very rarely talk about, but the cults keep quiet about it because they don't want anybody to think they're resistible. And um, the anti-cultists um, want to say that they're brainwashed or completely controlled. Mm. But the turnover is pretty big because there is this vulnerability that goes along with the um, fanatic fervor. And another thing that the convert or new religious movement, by my definition, has that uh, they tend to see things very much in black and white terms. Yes. The good the baddies, the satanic and the godly, etc. Very dichotomous worldview. So grades, and on the one hand, on the other hand, etc. They're, they're not wanted. And you can get that in, in the anti-cultural sections of it at least as well. 
absolutely the the, the polarization the black and white thinking mm. um and the notion of good and evil um it, it, we are we are riven by by these uh, ideas and i mean it's so if if we look to the notion of brainwashing that um there are many shades of degree we now of course since 2015 in this country um have coercive control within relationships is is considered a, a criminal act um and for hundreds of years we've had the tort of undue influence um my favorite case is one that um lord bacon ruled on in i think 1610 a woman called mrs death um we'd say death these days but mrs death who had lured this 80 year old gentleman into her household killed off her own husband and married this bloke so she could get his his money and uh, she didn't get it but it, this has been established as a notion within law for a very long time that one individual can exert too much influence on another. I think the, the problem that happens in the counter-cult world is this notion of brainwashing, coming, of course, from Sinao, the Chinese term wash brain, colloquial term for the re-education centres, uh, as the Chinese call them, or the thought reform centres, as Robert J. Lifton called them. And what Lifton found as we both well know, is that um, I think 24 out of 25 of the people he interviewed had actually dropped the views that had been instilled in them. There was one exception, who was a Catholic priest who continued to believe the material. And so you then have to have, there's, there's a process of changing somebody's belief, but there's then maintaining them in a context where, where that seems to be so. So it's often the case, I remember a Scientologist who was born into the movement and rose very high by the age of 18, as is quite usual in Scientology. And then he had to get a visa and they had to send him away for a few weeks, be out of the country a few few weeks on his own. And he'd never been on his own. And he sat in his hotel room and he started to think, what am I doing? Why do I believe this? You know, and, um, became, became a you know, left and became an opponent of, of the group. Um, but people are maintained within a context and therefore will continue to believe um, it, the beliefs that have been instilled into them. What do you think about the, the techniques that are used within groups to instill belief? Um, do, do you have any views about that? You probably yes, it's, it's very, I mean, one interesting thing that has happened since I started and you started having an interest in this is the arrival of um, social media, the internet, because mm. when I started, in fact, to go back to that book, um, New Religious Movements, Practical Introduction, there's not one mention of the internet, there's no email or anything then. Mm. And actually, the first time I went on the internet was at a Hare Krishna farm in Sweden. They were ahead with it. But um, the, it has made an enormous difference to the control and this can work in both directions. Mm. In some ways, it has made the leader more powerful because he can reach out. And if he's got a good structure or she's got a good structure, this can be more controlling that, that the, there are less reinterpretations. You know, a lot, a lot of, um, what was that game that we used to play as children, grandmother's um, whispering game? 
and you twist for something and it would go round and everybody would whisper and it would end up with something completely Chinese different. whispers. Chinese whispers, thank you. And um, so that, that can be stopped. But on the other hand, people can contact other people either in the movement or outside the movement surreptitiously if necessary, and a lot of the movements impose sort of nannying on any kind of electronic devices. Net nannies. Or, hmm? Net, Sorry? Net nannies. Net so Scientology had one uh, surreptitiously installed on its members' computers for a while. Everyone has them. Um, I think in various, various movements have these. Um, and some of them just forbid any kind of electronic. But then for businesses, you very often need them. So, but that's a, a long story. But that is something that has changed the scene enormously as far as control. And then another thing is just to separate partnerships so that you don't develop um, intimate relationships. So sometimes you would have to have relationships with everyone, like in Synanon or the Rajneeshis. Um, or you would have them with nobody mm. and um, you, you would all be separated and you, you only had uh, horizontal relationships, sorry, vertical relationships vertical relationship. and horizontal. And so you were controlled in that sort of way. Mm. And um, there, there are other, if, if you've got a sort of hierarchical structure where the top person has the power and the communication can, can keep the structure and the culture under control. So it goes sort of down like that and stops now. Um, then that's a very good way of doing it. Fear is another. Yes. Fear of being punished, fear of God's wrath. Mm. That, that, that is a very strong way of controlling. God wants you to do this. Mm. You've made God cry, introduce guilt, shame. Terror of the outside, which is demonized. Hmm. They are all satanic. If you leave, you will have a car accident. So-and-so left and you got cancer. Hmm. Why do you think that happened? And I know people who have been out of some groups for years and are still scared to death. Hmm. I mean, if you say the word Armageddon to anybody who's been a Jehovah's Witness, they will visibly recoil. You know, it might be 30 years later, but that such a horror is instilled in them mm. um, and, and it, it lots, lots of ways yeah but separating people out so that they can't communicate now the second generation is interesting in this way because when well, i was talking yesterday to a former member who said that she didn't dare talk ever to even other children but I found in a lot of other groups that other kids would join together mm. and they, they weren't separated. They could trust each other in a way that the other first generation couldn't. And so they could build up their own stories or their own resentments. Mm. Um, but that doesn't always happen. Nothing always happens. No. I mean, I, I would guess, and I, I don't have numbers for it, but but in dealing with Scientologists, that probably about 50% of the kids who grew up in Scientology, by the time they were 16, didn't want anything more to do with it. Um, I've learned that. I well, mean, the Unification Church, the first cohort, hmm. and I found this with ISKCON, the Children of God, the Unification Church, and possibly others, the first cohort of the second generation. Hmm. 
leave immediately because they are treated very badly. Yeah. And then the second cohort of the second generation, they've got their act together. The first generation has matured more. They realize they're losing their kids. Mm. And they've denominationalized, to use the old sociological term. You know, yeah. They've become more less than us. And so the second cohort are more likely to go to public schools, have friends that are outside, etc. Mm. And it becomes more and more like you sort of belong to the Methodists or Baptists or something. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not this further. So they don't mind staying in. Most of their friends are in. Mm. Um, so th there's quite a big curve, demographic curve, mm. you can see as time passes. And, and there's a, a distinction, certainly in Scientology, between the those who are, you know, live-in members, the sea organisation, so-called, and what Scientology call the public. I was a public Scientologist, and so I didn't see any of the awful behaviour that, you know, I didn't know anything about the intelligence agency, I didn't know about the Rehabilitation Project Force, which we're told they've now stopped doing, which is, is a very good thing. Um, but so so if you grew up as a public Scientologist, um, Mike Rinder and Chris Shelton are two well-known um, critics of Scientology who grew up within the movement, but they were not inside the Sea Organization. Um, so what I found was that kids who'd grown up in the very harsh environment of the Sea Organization um, had a much higher tendency to leave. That's interesting. I'd yeah. seen it face to face, but um, I mean, on the subject of of um, technique, there, certainly there are many dissociative methods that are used within groups, whether it be, you know, chanting, singing, drumming, dancing. Um, in Scientology, you have something like 2000 different techniques, um, which mimic many of the forms of counseling in the society outside. Indeed, um, Fritz Perls and Carl Rogers both commended Ron Hubbard on his techniques quite publicly, which was they should maybe have looked a little bit further. But in looking at those techniques, Hubbard was very deliberately taking methods that are used by hypnotists and reapplying them. And so you could, you know, if, if you're feeling polite about it, call Scientology a system of hypnotherapy. Um, but you might, on the other hand, not feel that it's tremendously therapeutic. Um, I'm not sure that it is. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it isn't. But to what extent is, is that happening? To what extent do you feel that the application of these methods will make people more vulnerable and more accepting of beliefs? You know, in your experience. Well, you mean how successful are they? The, which... Repeat the question. It, the, Sorry, I was sort of wandering off about Scientology a bit while you, at the end of your talk, from what you had been saying. Yeah, this can happen. Um, to, to what extent have you seen such techniques, or, or do you feel that such techniques um, do make a difference to, to the individual they're applied to and do make them more likely to feel a sense of awe, to, to you know, get in with the belief system. So in Scientology, for example, you pretty much usually start with the training routines and 
The second of these, you will sit and stare at somebody. They say confront. They don't like the word stare for some reason. Um, it, an ancient Hindu practice called Tratak, in fact, it's a meditative practice that's been around for a long time, but you're meant to sit pretty much motionless. Uh, there was a brief period where it was meant to be without blinking, but the human being can't actually do that. And during that experience, and during the experience of meditation, indeed, you will start to have visual hallucinations. Um, if your brain works properly, if it doesn't, you won't have hallucinations. And you'll be feel dissociated, uh, derealized is, is the term used by psychiatrists, because the world around you seems flimsy. And, and you may have a sense of depersonalization, where you feel as if you're not quite inside your own body. Um, yeah. I, I've, you know, to what extent do you think that these techniques actually do make people more susceptible to accepting beliefs? I don't know is the short answer. I, I've never actually studied those. Mm. I, I've not studied Scientology. Yeah. I mean, I know them, I deal with them quite a lot, but they're at the sort of higher level, I'm fairly sure about mm. their beliefs. Um, some of them seem all, not all. Um, I, I wanted to study it ages ago, and I asked Heba Gentry, if you remember. I, I talked with Heba's ex-wife once a month, actually. She is now right. a former member, but yeah. Oh, uh, I was asking about that data, but anyway, um, I asked him if I could do the audited, and he said no. Um, now, you have, they have allowed, um, I mean, Don Westbrook has um, done auditing and as a uh, scholar, but in those days, I, I just thought it allowed. So I rather lost interest if they mm. were going to let me see what they did. And I wasn't going to be able to judge them or anything. And I mean, I, I've been to lots of meditation, Buddhist meditation things, which aren't quite the same. Um, because there you're trying to go inside rather than being controlled. I mean, obviously they do work to some extent, mm. but they can work both ways. It can put people off. Mm. They can have narcissistic experiences, but you obviously know far more about this. It's more the sort of stuff that a psychiatrist would do than a sociologist. Mm. Or a yes. Perhaps. So I, I've never really asked that question of any data that I've, any of the people I've been studying. Mm. As you say, it is. Should, but they haven't been employed. Mm. I mean, they, they have to some extent. You have get endless singing with the moons um, and various things which I usually found excessively boring. <laughs> yes. And, um, <laughs> I think that's a major technique, isn't it? Boring the hell out of people yes. until they give up. <laughs> yeah, but my, I'm afraid I can't add anything to the conversation, really. Mm. Fair enough. Uh, we recently, with Shinzo Abe's assassination, the unification church has, has come to light again, and the realization among the public possibly that um, the unification church has influence in the Japanese and South Korean parliaments. Um, and in Japan, of course, you also have Sokugaka or Nichiren Shosu. And I wonder what you think about the, you know, the 
the split in the unification church and the you know the gun factories the determination that one of the sons has to arm every american with an assault rifle um what do you think about the the situation the, you know the, the power that the unification church has in the world uh, having pulled together so many followers in the east not so so many in this country as you found out to the dismay of uh, Anti-cultists, I think you found there are about 150 Moonies in this country. Is that right? Seven, I think. I can't remember that. Yeah. Uh, but, but what do you think of, of the current situation and, and the political influence that Unification Church has? They're not all that, that large, even in the um, East. They're, they're, they're largest in Japan and then Korea. Yeah. But otherwise, practically not at all. Um, you have any estimate of, of membership in, in that part? None of which are reliable. Um, if you were generous, there may be a million altogether, but you'd mm. have to be very generous and count people who are just sort of friendly. Mm. Um, I mean, sometimes the numbering is done as whether you're blessed, but then they have blessings, which they just sort of hand out to people in the street and give them a bit of holy um water or wine to drink without their knowing what was going on at an extreme um so the numbers really aren't that big mm. um but the, the it depends also that there are all these different layers now yeah. and as i was saying earlier the second the later second generation and now third generation aren't nearly so much involved Mm. They might go to a service on Sundays um, near where I live. They, they have, have one in a hall that they rent and some of them meet up and have a service which is just like a non-denominational service. It's, mm. it's very exciting at all. Um, you, you, you inflated a whole lot of questions, the splits. Um, this is interesting. I mean, the vast majority have followed mum, Mrs. Moon, Dr. Moon, um, and the Family Federation. Part of them just went along because that meant they didn't have to change, they didn't have to make their decision. The ones who joined the eldest living son are pretty small in number, but they're still fighting over the money. Yes. Um, he's doing quite a lot. In fact, both the Family Federation and the Global Peace Foundation, I get these CPFs and things muffled up. But anyway, Preston's lot. Mm. They both this week, past week, had big celebrations about unification and human rights and things, so they had a whole lot of important people. The Family Federation had Trump give a message and um, various people in the Trump um, camp um, giving talks and support. Um, they're probably being paid quite a lot for doing this, possibly having their speeches ghosted at least by members. Mm. Um, but what, what I found looking at the people who turn up, they're very rarely people who are in charge at the moment. Sometimes they are, mm. but usually they're 
people like this country, Ted Heath. Ted Heath, of course. Being the elder Bush once he stopped being a member, he and his wife um, go along. Um, they, they're usually sort of people who were glory in glorious positions and mm. are now sort of moon provides them with some kind of glory, as it were, mm. presents them with medals and what have you. Um, it's it's a, just a kind of lobbying, in a way, to get support. Mm. Um, the unification of North and South Korea, I mean, the, the Moon Eastern, and Moon himself, I went to Kim Il-sung and met with Kim Il-sung, and the present Moonies have been in North Korea, present unificationists, as you call them, um, have been in North Korea. Um, there's no doubt that they want unification, but um, under a democratic country, obviously. Mm. Um, at least it's, they, they see that. Um, as for Sean, the youngest son and his guns, mm. um, I visited them a couple of times. Um, Sean is very charismatic and charming. Mm. Um, Cook Jin, who's the, his elder brother who owns the car arms, um, is also pretty charismatic. Mm. Um, I've had a lunch with both of them. Um, I did find Sean, I mean, Sean, I did find personally charismatic. Cookman mm. lied through his teeth while he was talking to me, but he was still sort of rather charming. <laughs> um, they've got this look, and I read his Sean's book. Uh, I mean, I'm absolutely dead against arms and everything. It couldn't be further. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I lived through the Second World War, lost my father there, and I, I'm not quite a pacifist, but almost next thing. And their beliefs I find foreign. But I could actually understand his arguments if he mm. takes things. But... You, you've got to accept certain suppositions. One of them is theological, an interpretation of the Bible, the rod of iron. Um, and Moon himself, of course, had armament factories and things. Yeah. It didn't just start with... Um, no, he was making M1 um, carbines for the US Army, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And um, so... Their argument is that everybody's got a gun and you've got local police instead of big government. But I mean, they're, they're also all for Trump. Uh, and one of Trump's sons is quite friendly with Putin. But how much influence they have, compared to the lobbying that goes on on Capitol Hill, I mean, the lobbying there, I, I had a friend who was one of Baptist, Baptist Union, who, who was a very strong lobbyist mm. for um, First Amendment rights and mm. things. And so I learned a bit about the lobbying while I stayed with him, and he used to come and stay with us quite a lot. Um, and 
it's pretty powerful. I think far more powerful than moon. Yes, I, I, I would tend to agree. Tries. It's like they tried to brainwash in a sense, but they're just not all that successful, I don't think. Mm. Oh, and they backed the wrong horse, didn't they, going with Nixon? That that, that didn't yeah. work out very well. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, so, I mean, they can help perhaps at times of election, doing lobbying, handing out leaflets and things like that, giving money. Um, but other big lobbying groups do this. Mm. Um, so I don't find that all that unusual as far as cults, new religions, or whatever we're going to call them, mm. are concerned. Um, there's an awful lot of underhand robbing that goes on in the world anyway. Absolutely. Um, um, that's not to say it doesn't happen. It's not to say they don't want it. It's not mm. to say they don't spend a lot of their money. Mm. Uh, and that a lot of their money could have been got by means that you don't approve of in Japan, with the spiritual sales of vases or vases as uh, things on the other side of the Atlantic Kingdom. Um, it goes on, and that's how they will spend a lot of their money. Yeah. But they're also doing it for peace, um, to some extent, welfare, giving out money to the poor, yeah. um, building wells and doing all sorts of things like that mm. uh, people say they're just doing that for pr but if somebody can build a well in the village whether it's for pr or not i don't care i mean you know give them the well i tend to agree um i mean with scientology of course you had the infiltration of government agencies for which members were sent to prison in canada and the united states um it certainly happened all around the world. Um, well, the Unification Church had various young ladies who acted as secretaries and things from the mm. um, Again, you know, American politics, you see that happening anywhere. Yeah, and, it, and I think I tend to agree with you that, that many of these groups or several of, several of these groups put a lot of effort into um, their you know, public relations front or, or having some influence in politics. It's interesting that I think every president since George W. Bush has complained about Germany's um, determination not to allow Scientologists to be within the civil service, um, which I think is understandable having seen how much infiltration of governments and how much passing of documents went on. But it, it is a moot point. But it's interesting that it, you know, the State Department year on year issues these statements saying that Germany is, is acting in a, a manner that is offensive to religious belief because it won't allow Scientologists into the civil service. I, I was a special lecturer at the University of Beirut for a week and I had to sign a piece of paper saying that I was not a Scientologist. <laughs> I refused to do it. Are you now or have you ever been? Yeah, so, yeah. not really. <laughs> No. Um, no, I thought that was a bit off. I do. It, it's it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult situation because our beliefs, you know, sh should be our own, and um, as long as we're not uh, notorious criminals, then uh, 
we shouldn't be subjected to such uh, questioning, I don't think. What about the um, the whole QAnon craze? We QAnon at peak had 3 million members on Facebook in 71 countries, and we suddenly saw this merging of just about every conspiracy theory you can think of, including anti-vaxxing. Um, for me, this, with this, <clears throat> you see, I, I, I generally think of things as belief systems, whether they're new religious or movements, I, they're belief systems. And to me, QAnon is a fascinating eruption of irrationality and, and conflict. Do, do you have any thoughts about it and the Trump? I agree, yeah. I, I sort of keep starting to read the stuff and then I sort of oh. um, I'm just too busy to go into it and so many people are. But every day on my inbox, I, I guess I should be at least half a dozen, well, perhaps not every day, half a dozen, but I should think probably about 20 a week. Oh. And um, I don't know. I mean, I am curious because I do know some people who vote for Trump, it seems to be an incredible thing to do. And trying to understand them, Mm. Um, two people who I would call friends, mm. I think. Well, I think Michael Langoni voted for uh, Donald Trump, so which was a surprise to me, I must say. But now I've had long um, email conversations, and he can sort of make sense if you mm. starting from a particular point of view, mm. which I'm not starting from. But he is. No, and I have greatest respect for Michael, mm. um, but and he, he isn't just a blind. Um, you know, he does it for reasons. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, I haven't looked into it as deeply as um, I would like if I had time. I'm just so busy running, trying to catch up with myself with other things. Yes, it, it, it is overwhelming, the amount of the barrage of material. I, I mean, I stopped investigating Scientology in 1996 and kept away from it for 17 glorious years and um, then was dragged back because I realised that many people were having difficulty shedding the beliefs. And so even though they no longer professed Scientology as a, a religious faith or a belief, it had still got into their way of thinking. So they you know, they might not think about the overt motivator sequence. They might now call it karma. They might not think about past lives, uh, but they would still believe in reincarnation. And I, I don't particularly mind what people believe. I'm an agnostic, so I don't have to worry about that. Um, it's a very safe position, I find. Yeah. But so, you know, if somebody, they, they go to a particular church and they, they behave in a, pro-social way that's absolutely fine by me I'm really not concerned what they call you know what metaphors they use for, for the universe but the problem does arise that that people will not have thought about it and it bringing people to actually question and challenge any views whether it's you know um, something that Marx said or something that Weber said or, or, or whoever the authority is as, um, my lovely new wife is trained as a counsellor and she trained in um, person-centred therapy, what used to be called 
client-centered and before that was called Rogerian. And whenever she proposed an idea that, that challenged something that Carl Rogers had said, there would always be a part of the room that'd be saying, you can't do that because Carl Rogers said it. And we, if we talk about cults, you know, you know, for me, dealing with people who believe in Freud, and I have a friend who's, who's an analyst, it, I just can't make, I've never, from my teens, when I first encountered this stuff, it's like, it's libido or thanatos. I mean, the, where is the science? Where is there anything to, to, to back this up? Um, with the US, I, I think that, that the Trump-Clinton, you know, I couldn't really favor either of them because I, I believe that the US has become a plutocracy. Well, I think it's always been a plutocracy. And as you say, lobbying is a terrible problem. Obama, the first thing he did when he became president was to say, you've got to have been at least two years away, I think it was, from working with government before you can become a lobbyist. But they're, they're just, you know, the, the NRA and, you know, which, which I, I am willing to regard as a cult in the worst, most pejorative sense, has so much power in the US and is able to um, nominate politicians. I remember John Kerry, when he was standing, um, there, he had a marquee meeting and you had to pay $100,000 to go into the marquee so you might be able to talk to him. And that just doesn't feel like democracy to me. It's, uh, and I, I don't have, you know, I'm not socialist. I don't have any left leanings, but I really believe in democracy and, and going towards that. So given the choice between Trump and Clinton, one of my friends who's has a PhD, he's a very smart guy, he reckons that Trump probably did less damage than Clinton would have done, which was an interesting perspective, you know, because he tied things up so much and got so busy with his own image rather than actually doing very much. But, um, and of course now he, uh, it'd be interesting to see if he can get this warrant quashed that has found these, uh, all of yeah. these secret documents that he shouldn't have had, who knows. Um, I, I think we should probably wrap up. I think this has been very informative for me. Um, and uh, if you're willing, I'd like to come back in a couple of months time. And if, if there's something that you'd like to talk about, perhaps um, um, try that out. But uh, is there anything that, that you, uh, Scientology sessions end with, is there anything you'd like to say or ask before I end this session? You think so? <laughs> It's been um, it's been a great pleasure, and um, you know I, I will we'll, um, hopefully get some comment and reaction from this, and um, I I can bring that back to you. Yeah, will do. Okay, so thank you very much. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.